If you have your Bibles with you this evening, I would invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. Here at Christ Church on Sunday evenings, I have been going through the great book of Exodus. We have been seeing that this is a great drama of redemption. It is, in the Bible, the prototypical expression of God's redemption of His people. It is a pattern that we can see fulfilled in the redemption of the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have come in our journey now to chapter 8. For those of you that know the story, we are in the portion now in which God is sending His plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt so that the Lord might have His people set free to worship and serve Him. And we come this evening to Exodus chapter 8 and the plagues of the frogs and the gnats. Our text this evening is Exodus 8, verses 1 through 19. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Exodus 8, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house, and into your bedroom, and on your bed, and into your houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up upon you, and on your people, and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall only be left in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. 
Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, we come to you this evening to hear from you in your word. Lord, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we would not be only hearers of the word, but that you would make us doers of the word that our lives would be changed, that we would be made more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever tried to save money? And as you tried to save money, you went through your budget, and you went through all of the things that you expend, a cup of coffee here, perhaps a streaming subscription there, and you say to yourself at each one of these things, well, you know, it's, if I cut this out, it's really not going to make that much of a difference. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it's only $5. It's only $8. Why should I bother to deny this to myself? Because it won't really make any difference. The little things never really make any difference at all. Well, I fear sometimes we have the same viewpoint with spiritual things. We think spiritually unless something happens in our life that is exceedingly grand or is epic, that it's not really that important. That small things, small obediences, small events really have very little consequence on our spiritual lives. And when we do that, we begin to miss God in the details. This evening we're going to see God using small things to great effect. And he can do this because he's God. He's not limited by circumstances. He's not limited by the small things of the earth. As a matter of fact, God rejoices in using the small and despised things to show that the power comes from him, not from circumstances. And so this evening, as we look at two of the ten plagues, I'd like us to see three things. First, the Lord shows us His sovereignty. That He is indeed in control. No matter what others think, no no matter what the appearances are, the Lord is in control. The second thing we see is that when the sinner rejects God and His sovereignty, it becomes a curse to him. That the sinner's rejection of God is a curse. And then finally, we see that the believer's acceptance of God and his sovereignty and his work is a blessing. That for the believer, acceptance is a blessing. The Lord showing his sovereignty, the sinner showing that his rejection is a curse, and the believer's acceptance a blessing. Let's begin then by looking at verse 1 of chapter 8 and seeing how the Lord shows his sovereignty here in this continuing battle with Pharaoh. As we take up verse 1 of 
chapter 8, we see a familiar scene. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. Now, do you see how this chapter and this event begins? It begins, Thus says the Lord. God begins with a declaration of His authority and His power. This is not a request. God is once again not trying to find the best way to convince Pharaoh to come on his side. We've seen this more than once in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, that God merely declares his will. He does not negotiate with Pharaoh. And here God has not changed. In spite of the rejection of his command by Pharaoh, in spite of Egypt's denigration of Moses and Aaron, God still declares who He is and what His will is. We might put it this way. God is not worried about what Pharaoh thinks. I think far too often as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are worried about what others think. When we take a stand that the Bible is the Word of God, for example. Or that what is in the Word of God is to be obeyed. Or that there is only one way of salvation and that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're worried if others will accept our statements. And if we're not careful, we shave them down. We smooth them off in order to find more acceptance. Now, God repeats this command to Egypt and to Pharaoh. And the command is that his people would be let go that they may serve me. This is a good reminder for us. Because you see, as we enter into the story of the Exodus, oftentimes our focus goes to the Israelites. After all, they're people like we are. They're people who are suffering. They're people who are in pain. And we wish to see their pains lessened. We wish to see them set free and liberated. And our focus is upon them. But you see here what the Bible does for us. It takes our eyes off of Israel and puts them on God. Where they should be. The Bible's focus is on God's prerogative. You see, Israel is to be freed not for a reduction in their suffering primarily, not so that they would enjoy freedom primarily. Both of these things are good and worthy goals, but the main primary goal of freedom for Israel is so that it might serve the living God. Now, God does this again with Pharaoh by means of a direct confrontation. It's as if he's telling Pharaoh that Israel can serve only one master. After all, Pharaoh is likely looking at Israel as not only a people that are his servants that serve him, because Pharaoh believes himself to be the embodiment of the God of Egypt, he likely thinks that Israel is there to worship him as well. They're there to build him altars and temples, to raise his Authority. But God says no. You can only serve one master. And Israel is to serve me. And by serving me what God means is to come and worship me. There is a link here of service with worship. And so God then not only repeats his command. He then in verse 2 renews his threat. He says, but if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. 
Now, don't miss this in verse 2. Do you see how God begins with Pharaoh? Pharaoh, the hard sinner. Pharaoh, the one who is undeserving of mercy. Pharaoh, the one who has already rejected God and his authority. Pharaoh, the one who has said, who is this Lord and why must I listen to him? God begins with mercy. If you refuse, this plague will come upon you. You see, God gives a warning again to Pharaoh. This is the mercy of God displayed before us. But we dare not presume upon that mercy. And again, Pharaoh is an example for us. For if we look down this text, we see again in verse 16, before the third plague, there is no similar warning. The plague just simply comes upon Pharaoh and Egypt for rejecting God. But here there is a warning and a forewarning. That is, God says, if you refuse, I will plague all your country. Now, this is not the first plague to come to Egypt. Pharaoh, you would think, should know that God is going to keep his word. God has just told Pharaoh, if you don't let my people go, I will make blood of all of the water in Egypt. And you remember what God does. Exactly what he said he would do. So you would think as Pharaoh hears this second warning, the second threat of a plague, that Pharaoh would understand that God means what he says, that he accomplishes what he says he's going to do. And God brings this battle, this battle between God, the true and living God, and the false gods of Egypt, back to the Nile. Now, I think God does this for several reasons. He tells Moses and Aaron to go to the Nile. And I think we, see, we have seen this before, how the Nile is at the center of Egyptian culture and religion. The Nile was indeed thought of as a god. It was the source of all of Egypt's power and authority and wealth. But there's more than that. Do you remember what else happened at the Nile? You remember the Nile was the place where Pharaoh decreed that he was in control, that he was sovereign, and that all the firstborn males should be drowned. It's as if God is looking at Pharaoh and saying, you think you reign, let me show you who actually reigns. Let's go to the place of your greatest power. Let's go to the place of your greatest authority. Let's go to the place of your greatest pride. And there I will humble you. Do you see what God does? He doesn't have to take shortcuts. He doesn't have to work on the edges. God takes on his enemies directly and powerfully. And he brings a plague to Pharaoh and Egypt. Now, you could just imagine when this is announced that frogs are going to come upon Egypt. I like to think, perhaps, in my sanctified imagination, that at that threat of the plague, hard-hearted Pharaoh probably laughed. Frogs? Well, I'm glad you didn't say a plague of lions or a plague of bears. Frogs? My son stepped on a frog yesterday. I'm not worried about frogs. They're insignificant. How could a frog hurt me? Now think about that. The king of Egypt... And he's going to be taken over by frogs? I have an army. I have soldiers. I have priests. I have wealth. 
Frogs aren't going to affect me. But then God actually acts. And we see this in verses 3 through 6. It's described what will happen. The Nile shall swarm with frogs and shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So what happens here is the frogs swarm. This verb is a very interesting verb. It means to team, to be overly abundant. And what it shows is God's power. Because we're not talking about a frog or two. We're talking about frogs upon frogs upon frogs. We're talking about a swarming of the frogs. And there's irony here. If we go back to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7, we will see what started all of this was that a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph, and he was threatened or felt threatened by the Israelites. Do you know why? Because they swarmed. Because they grew exceedingly mighty, the text says. But it's the same word. He was afraid of the Israelites growing, teeming. And now God is going to show him that he could even work his purpose with something as small as a frog. And the effect is on everyone. You'll notice it comes to you, your people. Your servants. So even Pharaoh is affected by this plague. As we saw previously when we looked at the first plague, it was likely that Pharaoh was amongst those not affected by the Nile turning to blood because he likely had his own water supply. He likely had water reserved up. He was not in a situation where he had to, like the text tells us, the other Egyptians had to dig for water. Pharaoh didn't have to dig for water. He wasn't as affected. But here in Pharaoh's own house, he is affected. Now, one frog is not a problem. But a swarm of frogs is. Because there's no escape from these frogs. Imagine frogs in your house. Imagine frogs in your bedroom. And now imagine you go into your bedroom and you remove the covers and there are frogs in your bed. It is inescapable. Now, that's important because I think we can all agree that we can all live with a certain amount of mess. Now, I think our ability to live with mess decreases as we age. As we are young children and teenagers, the amount of mess that we are willing to live with is very high. I remember when my children were young, I would walk into my boy's room, and if I said it once, I would say it a thousand times. There are Legos everywhere here. And, and what I meant was, was that you couldn't walk without stepping on a Lego. And, and you don't want to do that. But my boys were intelligent enough that they didn't put Legos in their bed. They didn't want to sleep on their Legos. And when the mess and the clutter of their rooms got too great, what they would do is they would just get up and go to a different room. Now they might start to make a mess there. But then you know what they would do. They'd go to yet another room. There would always be a place to find to get away. But here, the Egyptians can't get away at all. Now, you're picturing, I noticed some of you shuddered when I spoke about frogs, but just think about something else. Think about hundreds or thousands of frogs in your home all croaking at the same time. 
Have you ever been in a place where you could not get away from noise? Where you couldn't get away and it was so bad that you couldn't hear yourself think. It was driving you crazy. That's what God's doing here. He's giving them absolutely no relief. He is making frogs more powerful than an army. This is the power of a sovereign God. So what do sinners do? Well, if sinners were wise, the Bible tells us, they would kiss the sun before his wrath is kindled. But sinners we see in the Bible and we see even around us do not do that. Instead, they reject God and they reject his power. And we start to see this in verse 7. The magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now, these magicians are wise men, we might translate this word. They are the men with the know-how. These are the men with the plan. These are the fixers. These are the people you call when you're in trouble. And when you're Pharaoh and there's frogs in your bed and frogs in your soup, you get the magicians over here. They're also not only wise men, they're magicians, which is why the word is translated this way. That is, that they are tapped into the occult. They, are, they work contrary to nature. They are involved spiritually with demonology and the enemy. But do you see from just a very basic principle what they're doing? They make absolutely no attempt to solve the problem. Could you imagine... If you called an exterminator and you said, I've got termites, can you help me? And he said, of course I can help you. Termites are no big deal. To show you how little a matter this is, I'm going to dump three buckets of termites in your house. I didn't ask for more bugs. I didn't ask for more frogs. How does that help me? But you see, this is how sinners operate. They are unable to do anything to actually help the situation. And then later we see in verse 18 that they're unable even to reproduce the plague. Now can you imagine this? There's a plague of gnats. And this word could describe either these little small bugs. Sometimes we call them noceums. Or they could be lice. The idea is they are creatures, small bugs that get on your body, in your hair, up your nose, all around you, and they drive you insane. Now, could you imagine the magicians coming, and they are covered from head to foot with gnats. And Pharaoh says, you're just the men I need. Help me and show this Israelite God who's in control. And of course, they can't do anything with all of their secret arts, with all of their stealth, with all of their hidden talents. They cannot do anything in the light of day. And so what they do is, we see at the end of our text in verse 19, is they make an acknowledgement that God is God and they are not. They say, this is the finger of God. Now in this, there is a partial acknowledgement here because I note to you that the word they use for God here is not the word of the covenant God, the name of God that was revealed to Moses. It is a more general word for God. It is a word used of God. But you'll notice that they do not acknowledge God's authority, His sovereignty, 
his covenantal relationship with his people. They reject God's power. And then we see in verse 8 that sinners reject God's purpose also. Pharaoh calls Moses and says to Moses and Aaron, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Now I want you to notice first that Pharaoh is not heeding God's command. He doesn't say, I will let the people go. He says, I'll let them go and sacrifice. So he's not even willing to go the whole direction. But his pleading with the Lord is solely so that the plague would be taken off from them. He's saying, plead with the Lord to take away these frogs. Please, Moses. Now notice something else here. Pharaoh is willing for Moses to pray that the frogs would go. But he won't pray himself. You see, Pharaoh still doesn't acknowledge God. He still has no use for God. He doesn't want to speak to God. All Pharaoh wants here is relief. He's not thinking at all about God's purposes, even though God has told him what the purpose of the plague is. God has told him, unless you let my people go, I will plague you. Pharaoh conveniently forgets about that. He wants Moses to pray so that he might have relief, and then as soon as relief comes, he backtracks. Now, I think here, cautiously, there's a lesson for you and for me. We cannot let our prayers be Pharaoh prayers. What do I mean by that? I mean that often, when we have a challenge in our life, a sickness, a disease, financial difficulties, relationship problems, we are eager to pray that the Lord would fix that problem for us. God has our attention. We go to the Lord and we want relief. And we know, according to God's word, that only God can give us relief. And so we go to him and that is good. But do we make an attempt to find God's purposes in his afflictions? You see, when we pray to the Lord to get relief from the difficulties of circumstances and the trials of life, We need to have focus upon God's purposes in them. Because there is nothing that comes to us apart from the will of God. God has his purpose in our life. The third thing we see that a sinner does is that a sinner then rejects God's mercy. We see this in verse 15 and in verse 19. As soon as there was a respite, we're told, As soon as there was any relief, in verse 15, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he would not listen to them. Now, I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. The relief, the respite, is not even a large respite. Because although the frogs are gone after a fashion, they're not. They're not croaking and being so loud that you can't hear yourself think, but they are piled up in humongous piles, rotting. The land stank, we are told. So the relief is not even complete. Pharaoh doesn't even wait for relief to come completely, and he immediately rejects God's mercy. He now hardens his own heart, which means 
that Pharaoh is actually acknowledging with God that he is a sinner. Because even according to Egyptian mythology, the way that you determined if someone was a sinner was you took their heart or their life, whichever way you want to reveal it, and you put it on a scale. And if your heart or your life was heavy, it sank and you were condemned. But if your heart was light, like a feather, then you were relieved, you were free. And so Pharaoh is saying, albeit not out loud, that he is a sinner before God. That his heart is hard, his heart is heavy. He rejects the mercy of God. This is what sinners do. When they reject God, it becomes a curse to them. Finally, we see that the believer's acceptance of God's sovereignty and of his will is a blessing. We see this first in the obedience that Moses and Aaron specifically bring to God. Moses does exactly what is asked of him. Look at this in verse 1. The Lord says to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. And so what does Moses do? Exactly that. God says to, to Aaron, stretch out your Staff over the waters. And what does Aaron do? Exactly that. Now for those of you that remember the beginning part of the book of Exodus, this is not always the case. Up until this point, we've seen several instances where Moses is trying to find any loophole he can to not obey God. He says, well, you don't want me, God, because I don't have a good tongue to speak with. Oh, you don't want me, God, because the people won't listen to me. Oh, you don't want me, God, because Pharaoh won't listen to me. But here, there is immediate and explicit obedience from Moses. There is no complaining. There is no questioning. You see, Moses would have been within character, at least of the earlier Moses, to say to God, God, why are you going to have me do this? We just turned the Nile into blood. That's a pretty good plague. That's pretty devastating. And it didn't have any effect. What are you thinking with this idea about the frogs? How's that going to be better than turning the Nile into blood? But no, there's none of that at all. Moses is obedient. And this is in spite of the fact that he might, not, that he might have seen that the first plague did not accomplish what it needed to do. Now, there is an application in this for you and for me. That is, you are to do what God asks. Don't worry if you are important enough to accomplish what he tells you to do. If God can use frogs and bugs, then he can certainly use you and me. The second thing we see in the believer... Beyond obedience is confidence. We see this in verses 9 through 11. Moses makes it clear that this is not some secret trick, that there is no limitation to this plague that comes. He's confident before Pharaoh. Could you imagine this scene? Pharaoh says, pray to God that he might take this plague away from me. Now, Pharaoh might be expecting that what Moses needs to do is to prepare secret arts, to prepare um, a, a big show, to prepare like the magicians would. 
And Moses looks right at Pharaoh and he says, that's fine. You pick the time. Whatever time you pick, it'll happen. And I, again, I imagine perhaps a, a kind of a sneer coming to Pharaoh's face. And he says, how about tomorrow? Can you do it in one day? How about tomorrow? And Moses says, it'll be done. Now, I want you to notice also the kind of confidence that Moses has. He doesn't need to show his authority and his power to Pharaoh. The text tells us that they go out from Pharaoh. They don't have to put on a big show like the priests of the false gods. They're not yelling and going into ecstatic dances and calling down names and imprecations. No, they simply walk out of Pharaoh's court and say it will be done. And Moses and Aaron then show the third thing. Beyond obedience, beyond confidence, what the believer does is he lays hold of prayer. Moses and Aaron go in verses 12 and 13 to pray to God. They're not worried about Pharaoh. No, they're not doing this for show. Instead, they are focused upon God not upon their enemies. This is again instructive to us because how often are we not focused on our enemies rather than on God? And when we do that, we are fearful. We fear those who are in the government. We fear those who are in the culture. We fear those who are denigrating the church of Jesus Christ. And when our focus is upon them, we are afraid and we are small. But Moses and Aaron teach us that our eyes are not to be fixed on our enemies but they are to be fixed on the living God. And when we fix our eyes upon God, then every hope is ours. Then fear goes away because we know that God is able. And so the result is achieved. And what that means is that those who know God are more instrumental in accomplishing his will than the mighty. Pharaoh cannot accomplish God's will. The magicians cannot accomplish God's will. For all of their authority, their might, and their power, they are helpless before God. But those who know the Lord and go to Him in prayer, they are used of God to accomplish His will. And I want you to see what Moses' overriding concern is in all of this. We see it in verse 10. Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Now I dare say many of us would be tempted in Moses' stead to say something like, I'll do it so you can see our power so you let us go. I'll do it so you know who you're messing with, Moses. No. All of this is designed so that the glory of God would be seen in the world. That God and his power and his authority would be inescapable even to one who rejects him like hard-hearted Pharaoh. Now what does this mean for us in the final analysis? Let me give you two things to think about for this evening. First, we see from this text this evening that prayers are more powerful than any man could hope to be. Because prayers... Lay hold of the power of God. It's, we're often, we often speak of the power of prayer, but I think that's a misnomer. 
It's not that there's power in our prayers, power in the words we say. There is power in God. And prayer is going to God and is saying, God, I can't do this. I can't handle this. But you can. Show yourself mighty in this situation. I cast all my cares on you. The second thing we see is that God's power does not come from the means that he uses, but from himself. Do you see what God uses here? He uses frogs and bugs among the least of all things in all of the world. And he brings an empire to its knees. God does not need powerful means. He does not need us to rack our brains and to invent new means that could somehow be triumphant in our day and age. No, we are called to let God work, to use the means that he has decreed, to follow after his ways, not only in our worship, not only in our churches, but in our lives. Don't try to manipulate your circumstances. Go to the Lord. He is more than you will ever need. Let's pray.